of the Albany Law School podcast. I'm Ben Myers, Assistant Director of Communications and Marketing here at Albany Law School. On this edition of the podcast, we're dropping in on a presentation from May 27th, Commercial Division Rules in Supreme and County Courts, What You Must Know. And in Commercial Division Rules in Supreme and County Courts have adjusted over the past year, mostly due to the pandemic. And you can join in on this panel of alumni and faculty experts to hear about these changes. The panelists include Stephen Younger, Class of 82, the Honorable Christina Reba, Class of 01, the Honorable Ryan T. Davis, class of 01, Danielle Quinn, class of 2015, and Professor Patrick Connors. And like I said, this was recorded on May 27th. Before we get to it, though, make sure to check out albanylaw.edu slash coronavirus just to make sure you're up to date on all the different things happening here on campus as we open back up. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram to get the day-to-day here at the law school. And if you like this episode of the podcast, you want to hear more, subscribe on any of the major podcast services or check out our SoundCloud account. Enough from me. Let's hand it over to the presenters. All right, I think we'll go ahead and get started if the panel is comfortable with that. Um, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Jeff Siebert. I'm the Director of Alumni Engagement at the Law School, and we're so happy you, you could join us today. We have a terrific program, and I want to thank our alumni, our, our amazing alumni panel, um, certainly including Steve Younger, who suggested this very relevant topic. So thank you, Steve. And certainly a special thank you to Daniel Quinn, who helped to organize it. Um, Danielle's going to give the formal introductions of each of the panelists, but I wanted to be sure Danielle gets a, a proper introduction as well. So um, Danielle Quinn is an associate at Patterson Belknap Webb Tyler LLP's litigation department. From 2017 and 2018, she served as a law clerk for the Honorable Peter W. Hall of the United States Supreme Court for the Second Circuit. From 2015 to 17, she served as a law clerk to Honorable Richard K. Eaton of the United States Court of International Trade. Um, She has been recognized in the area of commercial litigation, so that's a very relevant uh, nod for you there. Danielle is a member of the Historical Society of New York Courts and co-chairs the Young Lawyers Committee of that group. So Danielle, take us away and thank you all very much for putting this together and, and the work that went on behind the scenes for it. Thanks, Jeff. So uh, I'm here to introduce the rest of the panelists. Uh, we're honored to have Judge Christina Riva here. She's a class of 2001 Albany Law School graduate. Uh, Justice Riva is a justice for the third judicial district. And before joining the court in 2016, she held positions in the Office of Court Administration and at the New York Appellate Division Third Department. She's also a uh, fearless advocate for Albany Law School. She served on the uh, Albany Law's National Alumni Association and is a board member of the law school. Um, We also have uh, Professor Pat Connors here with us today. He's a distinguished New York practice professor and author of the New York Practice Treatise. He's also the author of McKinney's Practice Commentaries for various provisions of the CPLR and has numerous other publications in the field of New York practice and legal profession, professional responsibility. Um, We also have Steve Younger here, my former colleague at Patterson Belknap, who is now a partner at Foley Hoag. Steve is the former uh, president of the New York State Bar Association and has been a commercial litigator in New York and federal courts for 35 years. And 
Lastly, we have Brian Donovan. He's a partner at Harris, Conway & Donovan, where his practice focuses on commercial disputes uh, and personal injury litigation. He is also the past president of the Albany Law School National Alumni Association and is currently on the board of directors. So um, with that, I just wanted to sort of frame our discussion for today. You know, today we're going to be talking about the new changes to the uniform rules, uh, with a particular focus on rule changes that are bolded in your agenda. Um, as we go through this discussion, and I'm sure Steve will talk about this in a minute, the New York State Bar Association has opened the doors for comments on these new rules. At the bottom of page three of your agenda, there's an email address should you want to add additional comments um, and send those to the Bar Association. Um, also, with respect to questions during the programming, Jeff has kindly offered to field any questions. You can go ahead and submit them as we're talking about various topics, and we'll try to do our best to answer them as we're discussing, and if not, we'll make sure to cover them at the end of the program. So with that, I will turn it over to Steve to give us a little background on uh, these rule changes. Thank you, Danielle, and thanks for all your help in organizing this. Thanks to the law school and everybody who could join us today. Um, Albany Law School has been known for its expertise in New York practice, going back to many of our mentors, uh, including David Siegel, and who's carried on in that tradition, followed by Professor Connors, who we're really fortunate to have you. But it, it was always the stock and trade of, of we Albany Law grads that we know New York law. Um, so I think some of you may have been surprised at um, how many changes there were to New York practice uh, uh, at the end of this year. So I'm gonna give a little bit of, of context for it. As a commercial litigator, Danielle and I have been living with the commercial division rules for me for decades. I know Danielle not for decades, but uh, for a long time. Um, and I could say they work well for commercial litigators. Um, they're, apply differently depending where you are. So if you have Judge Platkin in Albany County, he deals with the rules differently than you do for the judges in Manhattan because they all have individual practices, they all have individual ways that they apply the rules. And I think that that regional approach has really worked um, in the commercial division. There's also an advisory council that puts out um, propose new rules or changes to the rules. The bar tends to weigh in on those proposals and that whole process has worked very well in the commercial division. But I think many people were surprised because they were not sitting, looking at the OCA website on December 29th when the administration announced that um, a whole host of these rules would be applied in our regular trial courts um, effective February 1. And that's led to a lot of consternation in, in the bar over just, you know, how that transition period went into effect. You know, did the bar get adequate notice or the ability to comment on this? Or do these rules actually make sense, all of them, for practices like personal injury practices or matrimonial practices? Others say that these rules are just meant to improve practice, you know, and not meant to be gotchas or, or set up defaults. And some, some say that, that, you know, there hasn't actually been a huge amount of change. So this is what we're gonna to discuss today. We'll discuss it on a very practical level in terms of looking at particular rules. As Daniel mentioned, 
the New York State Bar called uh, for a pause in the rules at, back in April, and they've been taking comments. They have a July 1 deadline for those comments. So you'll see the, the email address at the bottom of the agenda, and I really encourage you, if you do have comments, to weigh in. So let me start with Professor Connors. I know you're on the CPLR Advisory uh, Committee. Um, what has the advisory committee done in the past vis-a-vis -vis the commercial division rules? Have you had any you know, input on these? And, and maybe you could talk to the process um, uh, to how these came into effect. Uh, we, um, uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, and thanks for attending the program. We um, will get comments uh, from groups. And I, I believe um, in the committee's role as, you know, counsel to OCA on procedure, um, we did review the proposed rule additions and we issued a report. I believe that's in our annual report. If not, um, send an email to Jeff and I'll make sure that I distribute that. That's a public document. But we went through the, the proposals and made some comments. Um, I, I think some were addressed, many weren't. Um, I would just stay for my own position. Um, I, I think this is an unfortunate development, but it is what it is. Steve, I would just confirm what you said. The State Bar has asked for a stay of the rules, but um, there has not been a stay issued yet, correct? Yes, there's been some back and forth between the bar, as I understand it, and OCA, and to date, um, there has been no stay of the rules. They're still in effect. Okay, and we've got a case we'll talk about later um, from May 6th where a court applied the rules. But um, just what we're dealing with now in New York civil procedure, we've got the CPLR, which is, um, let's see, it'll be 58 years old in, um, on September 1st, um, which by the way, I think the Civil Practice Act has preceded it, only went for 43 years. Then we've got these uniform rules and we've got now these 29 additions to the uniform rules. Then we've got rules for a judicial district, Ryan and, and Judge Robbie, you're familiar with the, the third judicial district's rule regarding disclosure of experts. Uh, then you've got county rules. I see a lot down in Kings County that they have their own timing for summary judgment. Then you've got individual part rules, and then you've got an individual judge's rules. So I just think it's very complicated for the practitioner. And then to add these additions, some of which I think conflict with the CPLR, I, I just think it makes, um, it makes it very difficult for the general practitioner in New York State. All right, so let's get into the heart of the issue. And what I wanna start with is how the pandemic change practice. And I know that the rules to some extent were meant to, you know, you know, take advantage of a crisis with, you know, with improved practice. So let me start with you, Judge Reba, in terms of, I think one of the major changes is that we're now doing so many more things by vehicles like this, you know, Microsoft Teams, you know, Zoom. How do you see that working in your courtroom? How well has it worked? when we get out of the pandemic into more live uh, court appearances, are there things that you're gonna wanna do live as opposed to doing over a virtual conference? How do you see this? 
Thank you, and that's a very good question. I think the pandemic um, enabled us to look at ways to be more efficient, and I do think one of those uh, ways to be more efficient is having conferences via uh, virtual teams. That's the platform we, we currently use um, in the court system. And I think it helps not only um, the judges, but also the litigants who can be in Saratoga County Supreme Court, and they can then be in Manhattan, and then they can be in Albany. Um, I find that it's very efficient. Um, I can go through the scheduling order just as easily as if they were in, in my chambers. I would say um, I've also resolved cases and helped settle them um, during these virtual conferences. I do think that uh, sometimes in-person can be more, can be helpful when you're close to trial and there's that activity in the hallway. I'm In Albany, we have what's called a part one and um, any case that's scheduled for trial is heard by the part one judge on a very tight schedule. So there will be an opportunity for me to conference a case and then the parties go in the hall with their attorneys. And then when they come back in, there's been some movement. With um, virtual, there isn't that much opportunity for those um, types of conversations in the hall to help resolve things. But um, I think on the other side, we've been very efficient with still having those settlement conferences. And I think because we were in a pandemic and people were so afraid of going into the courthouse, there were a lot more settlement discussions because there was such a delay and there was all this unknown. Yes, we are open now. I did preside over a jury trial two weeks ago, but it was quite different than we're all comfortable with. Everybody had masks on, they were six feet apart, the witness had a shield um, on their face. And so I think, um, yes, we will be more efficient with regard to conferences, but there are hearings that probably will be better suited to remain in person when, when it's safe. Uh, so I would say it's, um, it's been a growing experience. We've gotten a lot better at, at virtual um, conferences and virtual proceedings, but there are some things that probably will be better off in person once we can, we can get back there comfortably and safely. Sorry about that. I, I think we all owe a debt of gratitude to the judiciary because you went through a lot over the last year and a half. And I saw a lot of patience from judges when many of us were having difficulty with things like not pushing the unmute button. Um, and so um, we've all been through this together. Let me turn it to you, Ryan. Um, one benefit of, of video conferencing is you can be up in Saratoga at nine o'clock. You can be out in Amsterdam at 10 o'clock and then down in Kingston at noon. Um, how has it benefited your practice? And are there things that you're really going to want to do in person um, as we go forward? Sure. And thanks. Thanks, Steve, for having me today. I, I'm honored to be on this panel. Um, I, I obviously there, there are it's a double edged sword, right? There's positives and negatives to this. As far as a uh, standard preliminary conference getting discovery dates, it's a wonderful tool. Uh, it's saving clients a lot of money, right? And when, you're, when your clients are paying you to travel to Westchester and back for a 15 minute conference to get discovery dates, um, it's really not a good use of their money or your time. So from that point of view, I think it's, it's wonderful. Uh, there are obviously things where virtual appearances make more sense. 
Uh, so uh, in initial, when the pandemic started, we had some depositions that had to get done in some more rural counties. And there was a lot of pushback on doing virtual depositions. And, and honestly, when it first started, I wasn't comfortable with virtual depositions. I didn't know how the exhibits were gonna work. Um, the stenographers have really uh, uh, taken on and evolved and have really been very helpful in getting the exhibits up on the screens. And it, for certain witnesses, it can still work. So we had to do some motions to compel depositions with some more rural counties. And so it was, a, it was interesting to navigate that back la last April and May. Uh, but as far as the negatives, I completely echo what Judge Ravis said. The personal contact you have with other lawyers, the relationships and the trust we've built over years and years of practice, uh, that can't be recreated via keyboard or on, online. I think it's really necessary to have those relationships. Steve, I know in your practice, you can call on people you know, and you have trust that you've built up and credibility you've built up over years. Uh, in, in my experience, people are really tough when they write emails, but when you actually get on the phone with them or talk to them face-to-face, -face, you give a better opportunity to work out disputes. So any, any significant conference um, on a complex case, I think really should be in person. I had a great opportunity on a, on a very complex commercial case last month. Judge Walsh, Saratoga County called us in and we hammered it out for four or five hours. And we got a resolution that was a bit unexpected. So I don't think we're ever gonna be able to replace that uh, in-person feel. Yeah, and I serve a lot as a mediator and I've done a number of mediations during the pandemic and it surprised me how well you could you know, get to a settlement. Although I, I still personally would like to be in person and be able to say to the person, you, know, you really should settle for the, this reason. One judge told me recently that the Microsoft Teams platform doesn't have the, the subgroup function that we use to caucus. And so I'm sure that the, the court administration is trying to improve on that because it will allow you to break people up. Let, let me turn to the first of our rules, which is rule one. And it, it gave me a little surprise that people actually found this rule disturbing because it basically says whoever shows up needs to be knowledgeable. Well, you know, I always was taught in law school, we have to be prepared when we go to court. Um, I think part of the pushback has been in, you know, for lawyers who have a lot of volume cases, you know, lawyers who hire per diem lawyers. But let me start with you, Danielle. Um, and for the young lawyers in the audience, um, so someone calls you, you know, that morning and says, oh, we got an appearance down in, the, in, in court, go cover it. Um, what do you do? Well, you go. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, I think one of the things, I, I understand that there's some concern about maybe younger attorneys showing up, but I, I don't read the rule to say you have to have settlement authority when you show up at a preliminary conference, right? Um, if a young lawyer goes, you should have the authority to be able to enter into a discovery schedule, you know, agree to dates and move the proceeding along. Um, and those are things that are, you know, I'm a six year associate that should be within our wheelhouses, depending on the case and the client. And so I don't think this rule actually discourages um, younger attorneys. I think it's more probably focused on a per diem lawyer who will show up and not have information about the case or be able to say that we'll you know produce certain documents by x date or disclose experts by x date um but i you know subject to others thoughts on that um probably <laughs> just as right thoughts actually um but yeah. that's just 
my general take on, on that rule, but it's not gonna affect me per se. And often Steve or someone would go with me, you know, at, at my first preliminary conference. I would be there with someone who's watching me and observing me, you know, to help me and teach me, so. Yeah, and, and it's important to note that that rule talks about having authority for the issues at that conference, not like everything in the case. Um, but um, Judge, how do you feel? I know a lot of judges want to promote the ability of young lawyers to handle matters. I personally think when we're talking about discovery, the associates know more about discovery than I do. Um, so, so how do you, do you see this rule causing any problems or, and, and how do you encourage you know, people that allow more junior lawyers to appear? I really like seeing junior lawyers appear at conferences. We've all been there. That's how we start and that's how we learn. I think this rule is, is just what um, Ms. Quinn indicated, that it's um, to, to preclude or to dissuade the per diem showing up and not knowing anything about the file. And that's unfair to the other side because people are paying for their attorney to go there and and move the case forward. And if one side doesn't know anything about the case, they don't even know if they can enter into a scheduling order because they don't have the calendar of the of the, of the firm that, that needs to, um, to be at the next conference. It's really not fair. So I don't think it's going to discourage younger attorneys from coming. It's going to discourage people who have no idea what they're doing from showing up at the conference and wasting everybody's time. So I think it's a win-win for everyone. And I don't think, I definitely don't think it's going to impact um, younger associates coming into court. And, and what I often advise younger associates is that, and I, I'm, I'm, I'll always be the younger lawyer, but anyway, um, is you should have been preparing me to go to the conference anyway. You should have given me an outline. You should have, you know, laid everything out so that you should understand what's going to come up is probably better than I would. So that if, if somehow you get sent down there on a moment's notice, you should be prepared for that for that file. All right, let's talk about Rule Eight, and let, let me turn to you, uh, Professor. Basically, what Rule Eight does is to try to front end load the case. So you're supposed to consult before the first conference about things like resolving a case, discovery, ADR, voluntary exchange of information. How does this change practice? Is was there anything in the CPLR that required us to do this, or anything in the uniform rules that required us to do these things before we first showed up to see a judge? Uh, yeah, there was. Um, by the way, this is on page twenty-three of the materials, and um, as Steve mentions, this is new rule two hundred two point eleven consultation prior to preliminary and compliance conference. Um, it, it used to be, um, and it still is in the rules, but uh, 202.12b says that where the case is reasonably likely to include e-discovery, Steve, we're involved in a case, it's reasonably likely to include e-discovery, we have an obligation to consult. Well, now we've got an obligation to consult about all sorts of things in this 202.11 at page 23. And I just want to backtrack a little to this idea that a uh, a young associate can come to a conference and not have settlement authority. Um, I, I'm thinking back to my day when uh, I was a, a baby lawyer and I went over to Supreme Court Onondaga County to appear before Justice Pooler, who was a Supreme Court judge at the time before she went on the federal bench. And uh, the plaintiff's lawyer was there and the plaintiff's lawyer knew Judge Pooler. And I think they were at the Syracuse football game that Saturday. 
and I walked in representing a defendant insurer and um, insured. And uh, she said, Mr. Connors, what kind of settlement authority do you have? And it was one of these, you know, where I got the file about 45 minutes before I went over. And she wasn't too happy about that. I think she would have more grounds today. She adjourned the conference and said, I'm going to adjourn this for a week. And Mr. Connors, you better not, you know, come back without authority because you're wasting everybody's time. But if you look now, I think um, that the preliminary conference itself under 202.12, one of the issues is settlement of the action. And then you have all sorts of other conferences now that are weaved into the rules. And I, I think you'd be hard pressed to go to any kind of conference today without some kind of a authority to settle and being fairly knowledgeable about the case. But yes, Steve, this was in the CPLR and in the uniform rules in a limited area, but now this is expanded to, to all sorts of things where we have to you know, confer in advance of a conference. Right, let me turn to you about settlement and mediation in particular. Um, and by the way, the commercial rules have requirements that weren't brought over, like virtually every time we make an appearance, we're supposed to talk to our client about ADR. Do you feel any pushback in the court system telling you you should try to settle a case before you even show up in court? Do you have any concern about ADR or does it actually give you an out to be able to say to the other side, hey, you know, we really should talk settlement because the rule says we have to talk settlement. Well, I, I always enjoy the court pushing settlement on parties or bringing up the discussion because there's always the back and forth of you don't want to show weakness in your case. How do you bring up that issue of settlement? And having the third party, you know, the, the court bring it up um, allows you to save face in your negotiation. That might be more of a practical approach, but if I show weakness that I'm willing to settle, that might decrease the number depending on the facts and circumstances. So I'm all for the courts getting involved at an early part, but you know, I, you know, I do a lot of federal practice. I have a lot of cases in federal court and a lot of, a lot of these rules are really bringing a lot of the federal practices and rules over and, and codifying some common sense, I think as well, but is sometimes it doesn't fit and we get forced into mandatory mediation in federal court and it can be a waste of time. Uh, so I think that you have to make a good faith effort and discuss that with your clients. But in commercial cases, uh, people are emotional in the beginning or they're upset. Obviously, they brought a lawsuit. They may have to see a couple months of legal bills before they really realize what they're in for before they think, oh, maybe we should resolve this. And in personal injury cases, sometimes the injuries haven't developed fully or in most cases, the insurance companies really want a deposition of the, of the injured, of the plaintiff before they can make that call. So. Uh, I am fully behind ADR becoming mandatory on the front end, but I think there should be, the court should allow, um, and we've done this, we've, we've written letters in federal court to say, this really doesn't apply to this case and here are the reasons. Um, so it obviously is very beneficial. And people should be aware that before the pandemic, the chief judge had what she called the presumptive ADR program. It was just starting to take off and, and had not been fully implemented. Um, but I think there has been a push for, you know, more early mediation. Um, Judge, I think, you know, given the backlogs that we're seeing because of the pandemic, you see more use of, of mediation in the court system going forward? 
I think it depends on the type of case. Now, Albany County, you, you have to understand, doesn't have the same backlog that perhaps New York County has. So I don't have a backlog in my chambers whatsoever. But I do think ADR has become just part of our culture now. Um, we ask, I ask about ADR at every conference. Uh, we do have uh, court referees that I can send cases over to to, to have the court uh, legal attorneys uh, mediate. And then there's also now a roster of um, mediators, but Albany's already had um, robust mediation practices that, that are known to the community of attorneys and to um, the community at large. So um, have I seen more? Um, I think there's always been a certain number and it's still there. I mediate cases, um, the referees do it, but um, I think every case is different, obviously. And some cases just aren't ready until you get closer to trial. So I think it's not one size fits all. And sometimes if somebody thinks they have to do something, they're not gonna put their energy into it because they don't, they're not ready for it. So I think I look at each case individually and um, have a real conversation when it's time. Um, sometimes that preliminary conference, it's obviously too, too soon. Depositions haven't taken place. Uh, the parties need to get more information. So um, I think in, if you send everything to ADR before you do any discovery, I think that's probably gonna be a waste of time. So. So I think, um, have I seen more? Um, I guess I'm not really keeping track, but I do know that the culture has shifted and we do talk about it a lot more now as judges. So that's that's a movement in the right direction, I think. Yeah, just one practice tip for the audience. When I try to get an early mediation, I also talk about exchanging information because you, know, you just can't sell a case without, and it's focused. It's not like, like, don't give me every document. What I want are, the following one, two, three, four, and I'll agree to just exchange it for settlement purposes um, because it allows us to have a meaningful discussion. Let me stay with you, Judge, on, on Rule 34, which is staggered court appearances. My sense is in many courts, you weren't having, you know, the, what we call the cattle call, where you'd be in court and you'd hear, you know, I don't know how many cases and you sat around and wait. Have you had that any time in the, the recent past? I have not done that um, since I've been on the bench over five years. I have not. I've heard about it. I, that's something of the past. But we don't have um, a call, calendar call, where people are just waiting to be called um, and have their case heard. So specifically, let me pull up. So it's Rule 34, Steve, that yeah. you're so, so now all judges are encouraged to have staggered court appearances. And I get the sense in Albany County you've been doing that for a long time. I think that may be a New York City thing where... You would go to court at, you know, called for 9.30. You know, nobody ever showed up before 10. I can tell you, you know, a particular county where the Yankees play, um, you know, a lawyer would check in, then they go to another courtroom, and then by 11 o'clock, you'd actually be called, which, you know, was just, I think it has to do with the volume of those courthouses. That's and, not, um, doesn't have, every I'm sure it doesn't happen in Albany. But. But I think, you know, obviously Albany is not New York. And so we don't have the same volume. We don't have the same issues that um, those courts have. Right. So okay. let me turn back to Danielle. Um, and, and let's talk about discovery. So one of the big things that is in the commercial division rules is this concept of meet and confer. And I know that you probably spend a lot of your time in discovery, meeting, conferring with the other side. It's, it's, it's a term that didn't exist when I started practicing, you know, but that was when the dinosaurs were still roaming. Um, 
should I just assume that the other side is going to tell me to pound salt? Or, you know, when you meet and confer, do you actually, are there things that you can actually accomplish? Right. So there, there definitely are things you can actually accomplish. Um, a few, a few things, you know, typically what happens is you will serve your various discovery requests. And at most of the, a lot of the meet and confer stuff will happen early on when you're negotiating things like search terms, custodians, certain non-custodial files. So you read the discovery requests, you go to your client and you do an investigation to see what you think is responsive. And you get a sense of the estimate of what you're looking at. It could be, you know, three different databases to, you know, 40 different individuals that you'll need to talk to. And from there, you try to figure out, okay, what do they actually need that's responsive to their requests? And when you're armed with sort of the size and nature of your discovery response, you then try to set up a call with the other side to just discuss ways that you can limit or narrow and give them a full responsive request without placing like an unreasonable burden on yourself or your client to gather all the information. A lot of the meet and confers happen so often, it's not like it happens once. So once you go through that steps, you may have that step that I just described, which is sort of this investigation period and initial response. You also then will continue to have issues as you go through and find out more information about how to narrow or respond to requests. Sometimes, and coming at it with this understanding, I think it's helpful. The other side doesn't know what you have. And so the requests are always gonna be broader than, and in enlightening, enlightening them on you know, what they actually need or what is responsive is sometimes helpful to get you to serve a more narrow discovery production that's better for everyone. So whether it's negotiating search terms or the number of individuals who have these documents, those types of things are typically what's resolved pretty easily. Yeah, and this is under Commercial Revision Rule 11, which includes Section 202.20a, which is about privilege, 202.11, which is consulting before conferences, and 202.20f. Um, and Professor Connors, and we already had this good faith you know, certification we had to submit on a discovery motion. How has this really changed practice to have these meet and confer obligations? Uh, yeah, we have it in um, 202.7, Uniform Rule 202.7a and Uniform Rule 202.7c. Um, I address that in the book, it's section 353. I've got a section for the requirement that on any motion, the book is New York practice. <laughs> yeah. The um, book. <laughs> yeah. Um, in section 353, it is a, a subsection there. Um, and basically, it discusses the uniform rule. It was, it's been around for a long time, um, 202.7a and c, that say, when I'm making a motion against Danielle in a case and it pertains to either disclosure or a bill of particulars, I've got to have an affidavit of good faith that I tried to work it out. Um, John Higgett from the class of 2001, Judge John Higgett, who was recently appointed to the appellate division, he has a case that I included in the supplement where he said, you know, there is that requirement and there is not a good faith affidavit with this motion that pertains to disclosure, but I don't think it's something that the parties could have resolved anyway. So I'm going to basically ignore the fact that they didn't try to work this out. Uh, Steve, the difference here, though, is the consultation, the meet and confer has to happen 
before you even have a dispute. Um, you know, the, the current or the, the uniform rule that I mentioned 2.7 contemplates a, an actual dispute requiring an emotion, but these rules now require a meet and confer in, in advance of any known dispute. Oh. Right, that meet and confer could cover sort of like discovery scheduling. I mean, I, I, it, if there is no dispute, right, then you would probably have a call to figure out exactly how you want to go about discovery. Um, you know, we typically enter into these things called protective orders where parties will agree on really before you even produce a document in the case, you enter in a protective order. And in that protective order, you define what is confidential, what is highly sensitive confidential information, what you're going to do with privileged information, and all of that stuff can happen before you're, I mean, that can cause some fight, fighting too, but sort of sets the groundwork to streamline the discovery process a bit. Right, let me turn to you. How do you see this meet and confer obligation playing out in your practice? Well, uh, I've, as I said, in federal practice, I've seen it quite a bit. I had a case in Oregon and we had disputes going, uh, many, many motions in this case. And counsel would chuckle and call, okay, here's our meeting for, we've just had it. Now we can put it in the motion and go ahead. Because <laughs> if you're at the point of making it's motions- It's pro forma. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And if you're at the point of making motions, a chance of you hashing it out on the phone, they're not very uh, significant. Um, you know, you look at 202, 20F, you have to, you can't do this uh, via email. It's got to be either in person or telephonically. Interesting, now in your, in your certification, you had this conference, this meet and confer, you have to tell the time it happened, how long, who was involved. So it's put more, uh, this rule is put more on drafting the motion, more that you have to remember. I think that's really the significant part because if you're making a motion, I assume you this dispute's been discussed uh, either through letter or in some fashion before you got to this point. If it's a summary judgment motion, I doubt you're gonna get a meet and confer to resolve that. And that, so I've seen this, but I don't see this being effective in resolving issues. This really just seems like another hurdle or another requirement to be included in your motion. Okay, let me turn back to you, Judge. Um, what I think a lot of lawyers are saying, I'm really concerned that if I don't dot all my I's and cross all my T's, I'm gonna walk into court on a discovery motion. They're just gonna you know, throw the book at me, sanction me, default me. Um, suppose someone didn't follow this rule, they didn't confer, what would you do? In the third judicial district, you have to uh, file a letter Taking a conference before you file a discovery motion. So we already have something. Um, so you can't just file a motion to compel without having a conference first. But if if it's outside of the scope of that rule and they didn't follow it, um, I, I think I would see if the other side is bringing it up as an issue and then I would give them an opportunity to cure it. Um, I wouldn't dismiss it or say you have to refile it because that's just a waste of everyone's time. And I think um, in preparation for this conference or this um, program, I spoke to Judge Placken a little bit about the commercial rules and the purpose. And it's not a one size fits all approach. And it's really to try to make things move efficiently. And so I don't really think they're supposed to be, um, I mean, I, I'm not gonna say broadly that each rule is just a suggestion, but I think that um, there is some flexibility there. And I think most judges are going to be reasonable, especially since these are new, they were rolled out in the middle of a pandemic. 
And um, people were nervous just to see, you know, something changing so quickly while our lives were upside down. So I think we're all getting used to the rules. We're talking about it more. We're having conferences and we're having these types of programs. So I think, you know, some attorneys might not be aware of each specific rule until somebody else says, hey, you violated it. I'm going to move to have your, your motion dismissed. And then I think the court will most likely allow the one side to cure it if it's um, not prejudicial and then go from there. I think that makes the most sense. Antonio? I was gonna say, yeah, I think that's probably the case except for that um, I mean, Professor Connors might wanna talk about it, but one of the rules, um, Rule 19A was what I was gonna Well, Let's get to Rule 19A later because that, okay. that's really more in the motions. So, so I think if, from my perspective, any court rule is meant to improve practice. It's not meant to be a gotcha, you know, and I think we have to rely on the discretion of our judges to implement these rules. And, and that's what, what, you know, we see in the commercial vision. I rarely see a judge say, oh, you didn't file this. I'm throwing your papers out. <laughs> that, that just doesn't happen very often. So Steve, let me just say, I, okay, go ahead. Steve, can I just speak to that? I, I think that that's what you see most times and maybe in your experience, what you've seen but when I'm reviewing cases, reporting cases, I, I often see that, that a court yeah. will, and an appellate division will affirm, a court will just really not deny the motion, but dismiss it and say, it's not procedurally appropriate. You don't have a good faith affidavit. And you know, this, this is supposed to improve practice, but let's look at this for a second. What's going on here? Danielle, I want a document from you. So I serve a 3120 demand on you. You got 20 days to respond. You don't respond. All right. Well, now I guess I got to give you two or three, two or three extensions so I can show that I tried to work it out. It's still nothing. Um, now I've got to meet and confer with you. I've got to show that we try to work it out. That doesn't work. Now I've got a motion under 3124 to compel you to produce the document. The Judge Riva grants that motion and issues an order requiring you to produce the document. You don't produce the document. Now be careful here because I've seen this too. So now, Danielle, you've disobeyed a court order. Now I can get sanctions under 3126, which might mean, you know, if you're the defendant that you're going to be found in default. But I've got to do another attempt, make another attempt to try to work this out because my 3126 motion is a motion for disclosure. All right. You don't give me the document. Judge Rybon back with you now making a motion under 3126. Uh, I've tried to work this out twice. Um, Judge Ryba issues a conditional order saying that now, Danielle, you have 20 days to produce that document. This is crazy. Ryan, you mentioned the cost of the client. This is insane how much time and effort we've had to spend to get one or two documents. And now the judge is a conditional order and Danielle, you don't comply with that. There's a dispute in New York practice about whether the conditional order is self-executing or whether I have to go back to the judge again. So Steve, I just, I, I think there could have been more attempts to resolve that problem on the back end then adding in these additional requirements about you know, meeting and conferring, et cetera, that you referenced there on page 40 of the materials. So uh, I just, I had a, an article I did a while ago called conditional orders can't get any respect. 
And uh, the best part of it is the first two paragraphs because it has all these Rodney Dangerfield jokes. But it really is true <laughs> that conditional orders in New York oftentimes don't get the respect that I, I think they need to get to, to make litigation more efficient. Thank you. Yeah, and I think a lot of this really depends on who you're dealing with, because, you know, if, if, you, if you're dealing with an obstreperous adversary that doesn't do anything, it's one thing, whereas if you're dealing with two reasonable lawyers, it's a completely different experience. So let, let me just stay with 202.20a. There's a, there's a preference now for what are called categorical privilege logs. Danielle, can you just explain what those are and why that makes it less burdensome and, and less expensive? Right, so maybe it's helpful to describe. In a regular privilege log, what you will do consistent with the protective order is describe by um, identification number, either a Bates or document ID number, the actual document, give it like a subject matter tag, deal document, communication, or something that describes the nature of the document, the date, the custodian, who's the individual who has the document or email, um, and then other people maybe who are on the email exchanges. And in a case where you have millions of pages of documents and there are you know, thousands of privileged documents, sometimes even more, to go through and identify that type of information for each document can be challenging. Um, what a categorical log allows you to do is create different categories or groupings of documents that you're going to assert privilege over. So some examples of categories or ways you can group documents would say like documents and communications relating to XYZ deal. Um, and, and then it would, or it could be like marketing um, legal advice relating to X product. And then you list the number of documents that would fit within that broader description, the date ranges, you'll include some information about file extensions, you know, if it's a PDF, if it's an Excel spreadsheet, um, what types of documents they are, and then you list all of the different individuals that are their custodians or who those documents are to or from. So what it does is like, for example, that, that group that I described, that could be 250 communications and you would have asserted privilege and described the basis for asserting privilege in one group as opposed to doing it document by document. Um, so that is why it's helpful. And often when you're in these larger scale document discovery situations, you're able to use metadata and various um, tools to sort of group the documents in this way. Now, if you are gonna do something more like indivi an individual log, your subject matters would be like analysis of deal and you would have that for every single document. Um, so this just prevents or sort of tries to streamline the way you're producing documents. Um, you know, some, there's some pushback to this, obviously, because you're not going to have as much individual information. Um, but the way that you would challenge a document in a privilege log, in theory, you should be able, if the person is doing the categorical log the right way, you should be able to have the information that you need to make that challenge. So that's, there's an area where these rules are meant to make things easier, simpler. Um, let me turn to you, Ryan. There, there are other limits on discovery that are more controversial. In 202.20, there's a limit to 25 interrogatories. I don't know how controversial that is. But the big one is 202.20-B, which limits depositions to, in number to 10 
but more importantly, the seven hours. So you're in a multi-party case. Um, there's a crane operator, there's a construction supervisor, there is an architect. Um, how, do you, how do you deal with the fact that you know, you're limited to seven hours? Well, that's always a challenge. And it's been a challenge in federal court. I don't mean to keep echoing this federal practice, but this has really already been happening for years uh, in federal practice. And I've had to go to magistrates and say, listen, we've got five defendants with different thoughts on how this deposition should go. And a lot of the time we get told, well, work it out. You're getting seven hours. So you really have to make a, 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 a well-explained reason why you should get more than seven hours. And honestly, seven hours is a long time. Uh, the stenographers are usually tracking the time. If it gets contentious, uh, we've gone right up to the seven hour mark. Um, but, you know, when I was reading some articles on this this week, uh, you bring up the crane operators, Steve, but really it's going to be an issue in medical malpractice cases. When you have, and, and that's, we see a lot of that, obviously everyone sees, but in the personal injury practice, med mal, you're going to see several doctors have different attorneys who have different ideas of how to depose the plaintiff. Um, and I think, and actually was speaking with Judge Ryba, so I'm not to pass off my responsibility right now, but I was speaking with Judge Ryba about this yesterday because I think she's gonna to start to see a lot of applications for extensions of time. And as far as the 10 deposition goes, um, if, this, if the facts of a case took a long period of time to occur, if it was treatment over years, it was a misdiagnosis case, um, these limits on the amount of depositions are, uh, could be restrictive. Uh, I would imagine that I know the upstate judges I can speak are pretty reasonable. Um, obviously I doubt counsel will get to too many stipulations to extend past 10, which is where al you're allowed to stipulate past 10, 10 parties or 10 witnesses. Uh, but I, I think you're going to have to really show that it'd be prejudicial not to. So I'm going to, bring Judge Rybate on this, if that's okay, uh, because we, we did speak about this yesterday. Sure. Now, let's start you, Judge, and, and just as background, one, you can stipulate out of this. Two, there are some factors in the federal rules, like, you know, which is where this rule comes from, which are like, are there multiple parties? Is the witness with a translator? Are the lawyers adversarial? We don't have many of those, I'm kidding you. Um, and the other thing to remember, it's seven hours of running time. So the court reporters keep the time typically. And that's, that tends to go more like six, seven o'clock at night if you do the actual time. Now we used to take more time for lunch before the pandemic than we do now. Um, but, but Judge, imagine you have a dispute over this. The lawyers come in. And, and I think one of the things that I've heard from defense lawyers is there's no incentive for the plaintiff, they only have one party to stipulate to give any more time. What are the kinds of things you're gonna look for? All right, so the rule says for good cause shown, the court may alter the limits on the number of depositions. So what is good cause? Um, I would have to make that decision on a case by case basis, but I was thinking, no, I, hasn't, I haven't had that request yet, but, I do think um, perhaps if there was a, a legal malpractice action and the attorney represented somebody for multiple years and there's multiple transactions, then an extension of time would make sense. Um, perhaps that would need to be a two-day deposition versus a seven-hour deposition. So I think uh, the reason why the rule has that good clause shown is to allow the judges to listen to 
why the, the extension is being requested. And like Ryan said, seven hours is a lot of time, but it has to be put into perspective. And so it's not a lot of time if, if somebody's represented a client for you know 30 years and now there's a an action, a legal malpractice claim um, that is linked to many different uh, transactions. So again, I would listen to both sides and make a decision based on um, whether or not the good cause was shown. And also, Steve, on, on the limit to 10 depositions, I, I do think it's a good thing as far as limiting the expense. We have some smaller commercial cases up in upstate New York as compared to what Danielle's referring to in these all these different types of privilege logs. Obviously, our clients might, might be disputing things of a lower uh, monetary value. And oftentimes, uh, the party with the most money can outspend the non-money party and it can really become unfair. So in a way that does create some fairness in litigation where we can actually get to the merits and not just who can afford uh, more attorneys or more depositions. You don't need to this okay. conversation, but we've, um, I need to give the first code, which is court, and then we'll give the second code at the end of the program. All right, everyone continue. Very creative. I think it's actually courts plural, C-O-U-R-T-S. Yes, C-O-U-R-T-S. Um, there it is. <laughs> Great. With a beautiful picture of our alma mater in, in front of it. Okay, let me let me swing back to you, Professor. Um, there's one particular rule which I think comes out of meet and confer, which is 202.20C, um, which now says that you need a specific response. So you can't just say burdensome, irrelevant, privileged, whatever. You have to say if you have a document, which I think is a, a good development because you know, I might be fighting with Ryan over a particular document demand, and we have nothing to fight about because there aren't any documents. Um, how do you see this changing practice in real life? Are, are lawyers going to have to update their forms? Are they going to have to do different things to respond to, to rules like this? I, I don't think so. You know, maybe you um, have seen this in the commercial division, but I, I think this is right out of CPLR 3122A um, and the surrounding sections that, remember it was years ago, um, Steve, if I asked you for 50 documents, you might just respond up, you know, they're all irrelevant. Um, and we amended the CPLR back in the 1990s to require that you particularize each objection and provide all the documents that are unobjectionable and relevant. It seems like that that's what this is requiring. And then you've got the supplementation requirement here. You know, this is on your page 33 in the materials, this rule 202.20-C. And this one was interesting. Um, item C of 202.20-C. By the way, the numbering system here is deadly. Uh, I wish somebody would <laughs> right. <attend to> that. <laughs> but it, it's subparagraph C. In each response, the responding party shall verify for each individual requests whether the production of documents in its possession, customer control, and that are responsive to the individual request as propounded or modified is complete. Well, you always had to do that. And then you've got the supplementation requirement, which is noted in subsection D, 3101H, 
Um, so I, I, I don't know, maybe there's something I'm missing here, but I was wondering what in fact this added. Um, so so I, I think in practice, it does make a change because rarely does a lawyer actually say no documents in response to a demand. I, I rarely see that. Um, so it actually makes us do that. And actually there's a rule that didn't come over from the commercial vision where we actually have to update our responses near the end of the case, you know, to say, you know, you know what we've actually found and what we haven't. Um, but, you know, I, personally, this may have been there already, but I don't think lawyers followed it. And we'll see if they start following it now. Um, but the, the idea that it, you will actually say in response to request 22, we have no documents, that actually, then I don't have to worry about that. You know, it, it just See, takes that one off the table. Yeah. What you say is after a reasonable investigation, yes. Yes. you know, you do your best and then try to confirm whether there's something there or not. Right. All right, so let, let me stay with you, Professor, because um, I know you also dabble in the federal rules. Before this change, we did not have the equivalent of what's known as a 30B6 deposition in, in federal court. So, you know, what I heard from trial lawyers was, you know, they're trying a medical malpractice case. They take a deposition of, you know, the hospital and nobody recalls like how much Pitocin Mrs. Smith actually got when she went into labor. You know, the, the, the record says it's X, but we, we, we you know, gave her Pitocin. Um, now you can require the hospital to produce someone who actually knows, you know, what Pitocin levels the, the, the plaintiff got administered. How, how would that actually change practice in New York? Uh, here's another one, Steve. I, I'm looking, I think, um, you're referring to Rule 11F, which is on page 35 in the materials. Yeah, this was your 202.20-D deposition of entities. Yeah, yeah, right. It was it's Commercial Division Rule uh, 11F, and now it's 202.20-D. Um, this is another one. It's in the CPLR and 3106D of the CPLR basically says, Steve, you're representing the corporation. I've got the plaintiff. I can notice Mr. Smithers in the corporation for a deposition. And then you have the right, really for the last word, as long as 10 days before the deposition is scheduled, you say, we're not producing Smithers, we're producing Homer Simpson. And then, I'm stuck with Homer Simpson. And I guess I have to then take the deposition and try to show that Homer Simpson doesn't really have the knowledge that I need. I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's the way I see 202.20D playing out um, and recognizing that if Homer Simpson doesn't have the relevant information, I can go back to the court and ask Judge Riba to order you to produce Waylon Smithers. Um, I don't know. Is this a change? From what I hear from trial lawyers, it is. But um, you know, in my practice, you know, we've been doing this for a long time, um, and um, you know, it 
it, it does, and, and maybe Ryan, you could weigh in on this. It does make a defendant, you know, actually think about who they put up for deposition. I, I tend to, in a deposition of, for an entity, put up the person who's been responsible for the case. You know, there's typically a business person who is your, you know, person because <clears throat> you can't educate someone on everything that goes on in these complicated cases. Um, sometimes you might put up multiple people in response to a 30B6 deposition. But, but Ryan, how does this play out in federal? Well, in 30B6 uh, for a federal case, it's, it's fairly simple. We've been doing it in state practice, at least in upstate New York, but it's usually based on the reasonableness of the attorneys involved. Hey, I need someone that's going to be able to speak to the HR of this hospital or how accounts are managed or what, whatever the topic may be. And usually lawyers, uh, in my experience, have been cooperative in trying to provide that. Every now and again, you get someone that may want to play games or really didn't do the investigation and called their client and put whoever they wanted up. In that case, you're just pursuing more depositions and it creates more animosity where it's not necessary. You know, when you can cooperate, you should. But it, so as far as it's playing out, I don't think it really changes much, honestly. I think we've been doing it as a part of practice. It just wasn't codified. So, so let's talk about discovery schedules. It, now the rule says discovery schedules have to be strictly adhered to. So judge, I come in and you know, I say, well, we didn't really get to all the discovery. You know, we're supposed to be done by Memorial Day. You know, I got a vacation planned. Um, can we have to July 4th? What's your usual reaction to requests like that? I mean, I, it depends on how old the case is. So we have standards and goals and we want to complete a case um, in a certain period of time, depending on what type it is. Now, the pandemic threw a wrench in almost every case uh, that's pending. But if it's a reasonable request and the parties tell me why they couldn't depose certain individuals, um, and if it's not asking for six months, six months versus, you know, a month or 30 or 45 days, then I'm, I'm likely to grant it to help the case move along and get to the end. But some attorneys do um, take advantage of, of that flexibility. And um, that could be frustrating because um, the case needs to move along the parties need a resolution. And um, it's frustrating at times when there are attorneys that show up and, and no discovery has taken place. It's very rare, though. Most of the attorneys are, are trying to get their case moving along. So um, it does say in the rule that um, non-compliance with such an order may result in the imposition of an appropriate sanction against that party or other relief pursuant to CPLR 3126. So I've never sanctioned anybody to date for a discovery issue, but you never know. I'm not gonna make any promises, but I, I, that's not the way I like to operate. Uh, so I'd say if it's a reasonable request, I'm gonna grant it. It's great that the rule says that discovery must be complied with, but is that reasonable when, you know, if you can't get the doctor to come to his deposition because he's traveling and then he gets back and then he gets in a car accident, I mean, what are you gonna do? Go depose him at the hospital? No. So every, you know, if it's reasonable, I think every judge would grant it. Most judges, um, if it's unreasonable, it depends on who you're getting. You know, if you get a judge who, is um, very strict with those deadlines, then you might not be in a, in a good position. So I really think it depends on the judge, but most judges are reasonable, especially when it's something outside the control of the, the attorneys. So let me turn to you, Danielle. Um, you've probably been in the middle of 
quite a number of extensions of discovery schedules. What do you try to show the judge to show that, you know, an extension of a discovery schedule is, is reasonable? I think we just lost you. Um, there you go. You're back. Back. Um, we typically don't wait to the last minute. To, so we've already undergone substantial discovery. We describe the limited nature and basis for the extension. It could be the case that, you know, um, it, we, it depends on if it's for depositions or for document productions. We also often produce documents on rolling bases for these reasons. So describing sort of what you've done to your homework to meet the deadline is typically what you do. All right, let's turn to motions. Um, Steve, can one, I mention one other oh, point on that? And maybe you've seen yeah. this in the commercial division, but it's on page 44 of the materials. This, this is helpful. Um, it's the new 202.10. And it's, if Danielle, if we're before Judge Riva and you're having trouble meeting the deadlines, it makes the point that an adjournment of a conference, like a compliance conference, is not going to change the deadlines in the preliminary conference order unless it specifically says so. So that's something lawyers need to think of to not just move the, the conference, um, maybe a compliance conference, but ask the court to adjourn the dates in the preliminary conference order for disclosure. Right. And you should probably file a proposed amended order um, that with the new dates. So, and you should look at the judges' local rules. Sometimes the judges will have like actual forms that you should fill out and follow, um, but you wanna look there and then give them something that they can just sign off with the new dates after you've gotten an extension. Or when you're requesting one, you can submit a proposed order too. Often what happens is you don't just go to the judge and ask for an extension. You talk with the other side and the both sides agree jointly that we're gonna need some more time here. And then I think, oh, to try to correct me if I'm wrong, that those are more likely to get signed if everybody's figured that this is necessary to move the case along. Absolutely, yeah. If it's if it's on consent, it's much easier to um, to deal with. Yeah. Steve, one practice point that's pretty obvious, but I think it's really important to ask for permission, not forgiveness. So making sure you're <laughs> way ahead of that deadline lets the court know you're actually calendaring this and thinking about these cases, and you know, not in hindsight. So I just I know that's it's written in two hundred two. 20E, but I think that's just a good practice for anybody because otherwise it's, oh, this case isn't that important. Oh, I missed a date. I'll just write the judge. And that sends the wrong message. Yeah, and I must say that the, the theme of the commercial division is case management. The commercial division judges are known for, you know, being very interactive in terms of managing a case. And I know that that's how things are done in the Albany Supreme Court, not, not so much in some other courts, but I think that's kind of the theme of, of the rules. So let's and turn Ryan, to that's also um, just uh, if you're keeping score out there, that's also in that document that we used to use, the CPLR. It's right in CPLR 2004, that factor, whether the deadline is passed yet. And that is a good point. Okay, so when we get to motions, there's one that, you know, kind of threw me, Judge, which is there's a maximum of three adjournments of a motion or 60 days. Does that change anything in, in your court? Which Could I adjourn Yeah, this is rule 16, 202.8a. Um, I can only adjourn a motion for a maximum of 60 days now. 
Okay. Um, I think it's a case by case basis. And um, I'm not sure if there's flexibility there. I don't know. Connors, Patrick, is there flexibility if, if I want to grant them if they ask for 90 days? Yeah, I We're think talking there, is <laughs> there, there is flexibility. And um, this is, um, I think, uh, one of these hidden provisions in the uniform rules. It's also in 202.8 E1, which has a very similar rule, but I think the judge has that discretion unless the court orders otherwise. And um, be careful with this. Is it case? I just wrote it up and it's, it'll be in the next supplement um, to the New York practice book, which is coming out um, in about a week or two. Um, Migliosino is the name of the case and it's in section 281. And there what happened was the lawyer wanted to adjourn a return date of the motion, but down there you have to do that 48 hours in advance. And that's also referenced in these rules. And the second department basically affirmed the trial judge who granted the motion and said, you, you were untimely in seeking an adjournment of the motion. You didn't have your papers in on time. The summary judgment had to be awarded against you. These things are, uh, you know, I think becoming more and more um, recognized by the courts and, and will be enforced by the courts, even though they're, you know, technically not in the CPLR. That sounds punitive, but if that's the way it went, that's the way it went. So um, that's interesting. I guess it's very important for the practitioners watching to pay attention to those deadlines, because if the other side is going to make a motion to dismiss your case, the judge has to rely on case law. So if that's the, what, what, um, where was that case? Professor second department? It's a that? second department case. Okay. Um, that came out of Westchester County, County and um, it's called Migliosino and I wrote down the site and um, give me one second here. Uh, I'll, I'll find a site and get it, get it to you guys later. Go ahead, Steve, I'm sorry. If you find it, you can just put it in the chat too. So um, so much flexibility we have as judges and we have to apply the laws that are in, in, in place. So. I would likely give an extension if, if um, there was no opposition to it, but if there's opposition and then they rely on case law, then I'll have to look at in whether or not the case is similar enough to have to rely on that type of um, precedent. Okay, it's 184 AD 3rd 818, 184 AD 3rd 818. And I, I thought that was relevant to among other rules, this rule, the new rule 202.23, which is based on the commercial division rule 34. Um, on page 71 of the materials. So it's Miglionico, uh, that's the Irish pronunciation, 184 AD 3rd, 818. All right, let's talk about the form of your papers. And this is a major change. Um, first one is all papers have to be in 12 point font, 10 point for footnotes. So don't bury lots of stuff in footnotes. I don't encourage that anyway. Um, but I think uh, more importantly, there's now a limit and it's not just briefs, it's also affidavits to 7,000 words, translates to a little over 20 pages and you get you know, roughly you know, 4,000 for a reply. 
and you have to have a certificate of, of compliance. Um, Danielle, we are working on a brief. You turn it into the partner, it's 30 pages long. <laughs> um, um, what do you do? You start cutting. No. Um, yeah, you, right. well, short, or short, I start cutting. <laughs> short, short and concise is always important. And um, I think that 20 pages is actually a lot of pages. No, but you these rules, like many of the rules, permit you, if you plan ahead, to ask for extra pages if, if you need time and you need more space. And it's the same thing that I said with the, um, conferring with the other side. So if for whatever reason, and we've granted these opposing counsel, you think that you need five extra pages, you need 25 pages, you can shoot your opposing counsel an email, explain that you would like to make a request for extra pages. Would they sign off and agree? If they say yes, then you can submit a request to the, the judge. But um, 20 pages is, is a lot of pages. So I think uh, it really depends on the nature of your case and what you're, what you're briefing. Um, but I de defer to Judge Riva. She probably has her own views on the length of papers. Yeah, and, and in your perspective, Judge, would you rather I submit something shorter for you or longer? <laughs> I, I do. I think if the point needs to be made, there's no need to go on and on. 20 pages is very long. So, I mean, I guess if there's a rare case where you, I don't, the facts are so extensive that by the time you get through them, you're on page 19, perhaps then you would need more space. But I don't, I don't see a lot of reason to go beyond 10 pages, but 20 seems a lot. That's that's significant. So what kind of what kinds of things would you be looking for if, if I came in and said, look, there's a really complex summary judgment motion? What what would, what are the factors you're gonna look for and whether you, you would grant a request for an overlength brief? Well, I want to know why you can't put it together in the 20 pages allotted. What is it about this case that requires you to go that much further? And then how how much more, how many more pages? I mean, is it are you writing a novel? I mean, what, 50, like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've never seen that. So I guess it would really be um, a case specific. Now I'm a reasonable judge. So if, they, if it makes sense that they need more, more words and have at it. But I think usually if it's a good, um, if you've got a good argument, you don't need to, to keep, keep at it. You put the case law in, you say why you should win and what the facts are and that's it. But there's always a, you know, than an outlier, a case where it is um, needed. But I would really need them to explain specifically why they have to go beyond the limit and, and why, um, why it's necessary. And Ryan, we already have these rules in our appellate courts. Um, what, what is the impact of having rules like this in the, in the trial courts now? I think it's beneficial. I think uh, there's brevity is appreciated by the courts. It's also appreciated, uh, you know, we, I have a small firm, so we have a significant amount of cases. And if my opponents are putting in 30 and 40 page briefs, obviously I need to respond in kind. Uh, I think this uh, helps streamline the practice. If I was gonna make an application, just to add on to what Judge Rabbit was just saying, I have one case now where, where there's a 125 page complaint and there's nine causes of action. So that would be a case where if there was a summary judgment motion, obviously we have to address all those causes of action and it could take a little more time. But as far as, I think this is a good thing. Uh, what I keep going back to the client. I have some smaller business clients. Uh, this helps keep costs down. And that, that's really important to keep, to keep the judicial system fair. 
we've got we, we can't have a VIP entrance where only the people with the right amount of money get to win. So I think that's important. And I think it's good that OCA is trying to keep an eye on that. Hey, so on, on the flip side of that, people say, well, this is actually going to cost me more money because I'm going to have to like edit it four more times to make it shorter. Um, I'm actually going to have to get my brief done earlier because so I'll know how long it is. Um, there's, there's another kind of piece of trivia in here, Professor Connors, which is bookmarking. I'm now going to have to have this thing to navigate around the brief. Um, there's something that wasn't taken over, which is hyperlinking. Um, and a lot of people hyperlink anyway, but I know that that is a little bit more controversial in the commercial division where you have to have a site that you could click on and get right to Siegel and Connors on New York practice uh, or yeah, younger on the commercial division. I'm kidding. Um, but um, how do you see these rules playing out in terms of you know the, their requirements on lawyers? Do you think it's going to make it easier for lawyers, harder for lawyers? Uh, I, when I'm hearing harder, especially for smaller firms, I just want to do um, some linking here. Um, yeah. You know, we're talking about the length of the papers. That's on page 48, exhibit R of the materials. Yeah, section 202.8-B. Um, yeah. yeah, correct. I'll just note, I, I've seen this, but when I read this, where is, um, I don't think we can stipulate around these word lengths. I think, so I think it takes, I think it takes the judge's approval. That, that's why it's been yeah. in the commercial division. Now, very often what I'll do is I'll call Ryan up and say, okay, I'm going to need more words for my opening brief. We'll agree the same thing on your opposition. And then we have to submit a letter into the court to ask for, for okay. permission. Good. Yeah. And then another incentive, I guess, now going to, this is exhibit E in the material, page 21, the new rule 202.5. Um, if you look at A2, it says if the memo, the affidavit or the affirmation exceeds 4,500 words, it's got to include bookmarking. Now, let me try and describe that because I think a lot of lawyers, I'm not sure I understand it, but bookmarking is really listed here. It's just an easy way to navigate around, let's say, the memo of law, where you can, on the front portion of it, tab on it and go to point two of the brief or the affirmation might have exhibits. You can link to that or actually click on it. Um, that to me is what I understand to be a bookmark. Um, then you've got hyperlinking, which in the rules does not seem to be required. No, um, it's not. No. Yeah, but it is required in the commercial division rules. If you go to page 72 of the materials, um, it, it talks about hyperlinking now in the commercial division. And I know in the second department, if you submit a brief, it has to have hyperlinks. And that's a little different. That's just if you cite a case, it allows the court to click on it and get immediately sent to the case itself. So it's somewhat different than bookmarking. But these, these two requirements, hyperlinking and bookmarking, scare a lot of smaller practitioners. And you know, at a larger firm, Steve, you might just send this off to, to people in the firm to take care of. But a, a smaller firm, maybe like Ryan's size, the, the lawyer has to do it herself and it can be time consuming. That's what I'm hearing. 
Yeah, and then there's another twist because you can also have hyperlinking to the NICIF e-filing record. And that's the one, in my experience, it takes more time because, you know, I started out with the Quinn affidavit, paragraph eight, and then somebody has to convert it to NICIF number whatever. On the other hand, I think for you, Judge, it's very convenient, particularly if you're spending more time not coming into a courthouse, you can just click on something, get the sites. And, and so from my perspective, if I could do it, I want to make the judge's Actually, life. I don't, I don't think it really, we don't really need the hyperlinks because we, we, we have Westlaw. I mean, the hyperlink is helpful, but I think if um, in the bookmarking, I didn't even know what that was until Professor Connors explained it. So um, I, 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 the rule is there, and I guess the commercial division's used to it, but I've never um, felt like it was too difficult to look up a case or um, not at all. So to me, but say, say I give you a link right to the affidavit, does that make your life easier? That, so is definitely, that is definitely easier and yes, it's definitely easier to go through, but then looking at the balancing of small firms having to know that technology, is that is it that much more important for it to be easier for me to review a case when the, the solo has to spend that much more time putting it together? So I guess you have to balance um, the equities. And I'm not right, sure so it's balanced. Let, let's talk about the one that's the most controversial, which is Rule 19A uh, fact statements, where you know one side needs to put forth on its summary judgment what they think the undisputed facts are, the other side has to respond to it. Um, Ryan, in federal court, how does this play out? And um, how do you see this um, playing out in, 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 the, in the state court system? In my experience, this goes once again to the reasonableness and cooperativeness of the attorneys. Some attorneys go too far with their statement of undisputed facts and uh, they take some liberties. I think it's really important to keep whatever statements you use in this uh, very short, uh, very unambiguous, almost, almost like a pleading in a complaint. Uh, I think it would, I think it adds yet another wrinkle to the motion practice, but I would imagine this helps the court decide okay these we can tick off these issues there's no dispute i don't need to get involved in this it should be able to streamline the decision process which i have little no experience writing so i would yield to judge Rive on that but as far as motion practice now we have word count certifications we have meet and confer and we have that and we have a statement of uncontested facts um or undisputed facts so i think it's important practitioners really pay attention to this because you know, as we might be ramping into this, these new rules, sooner or later, judges aren't going to just let it pass. So I think uh, it's pretty important that we get up to speed on it. But uh, it doesn't really help the, uh, the attorneys much. I think it's really a, a tool to help the courts in the decision process. Yeah, and don't forget that when you state that fact, you also have to state support for it, you know, the site to the deposition, etc. Um, so, Judge, I know a number of uh, our judges in the commercial division in Manhattan don't even require the 1980 statements. They've opted out of them. Um, do you think this could help you deciding a summary judgment motion, or is it is it just more work for us lawyers? I think it's just more work for you. I don't I don't think it's going to really help because there's obviously um, the reason why the motion's filed and there's an opposition to it. There's a differing on opinion, so it's not going to resolve the case putting that information together. So I think it's just more work for you, to be honest. So I'll Professor, go ahead. 
some of the judges in the commercial division, instead of having parties file opposing 19A statements, they ask for joint 19A statements to show what issues are not in dispute so that it's not sort of two ships passing um, and where the judge is unable, is unable to identify what facts are at, at issue. Complete sense, Danielle. That would, that would be helpful, a joint statement, definitely. So Professor, a question came in over the chat. Uh, suppose I failed to submit the required 19A statement. Could my motion be denied, uh, dismissed? You know, do you have any case law on that? Particularly a case out of Saratoga, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Steve, if I recall, you may have practiced up this way. Uh, Clinton County, New York, on May 6th of this year, Judge Lawless issued a decision. It's Royce, R-E-U-S. And um, Danielle, do we have that in the materials or a site to it in the materials? We didn't include it in the materials, but I can circulate the site in the chat now while you're talking about it. Okay. Um, I'll just, if you're keeping score, I'll give it to you. It's 2021 Westlaw, 183. 7673. And I have included that in the July 2020 supplement in section 281. And Judge Lawless. You repeat the site once more? I'm sorry. Just repeat the site once more. Oh, uh, yeah. 2021 Westlaw 183 7673. And it's Royce REUS. And uh, Judge Lawless there basically, in a motion made, I think only 10 days after the rules took effect, um, he decided it and he said the, the statements required under 202.8G of um, opposing the motion uh, with the corresponding you know, statement of facts was not included and said, I'm granting summary judgment to the defendant because of plaintiff's failure to comply with the rule. Now he did go on to say that um, he would have granted summary judgment under the old regime anyway. I, when I wrote the case up and you'll see this in section 281 of the supplement, I was looking for commercial division cases and it has happened with some frequency. Danielle was helpful in providing me some of these cases that in the commercial division when this happens and it goes up to the appellate division and maybe Steve, you're arguing to the first department, I should have been awarded summary judgment because Ryan Donovan didn't put in a corresponding statement of facts and the court ignored the rule. And the first department has said, Judge Ryba is not bound by the rule. Um, and you know, it's, it's there, but she doesn't necessarily have to follow it. So you know, that takes me back to what are we doing here? But anyway, I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right, there's another rule, um, rule 19, 202.8D that um, only allows orders to show cause if urgent and no replies. I think that was already the case. And then a second one, 202.8E, that I have to give the papers to the other side on a TRO sufficiently in advance. Does, how do we, you handle orders to show cause, Judge? And, and does this change anything? It really changes anything. I was just part one here and dealt with a lot of orders to show cause. Um, obviously, if there's a request for temporary relief, then the other side needs to be heard and, and needs to, I'm not going to sign that order before I, I have um, argument. So, um, you know, I think it makes sense to, to file that, get those papers as soon as possible. But the reason why someone's filing an order to show cause is there's some sort of emergency that's come up and they need to, to have that looked at by a judge. So depending on the case, I mean, if it's about a tree being chopped down, 
they didn't know until it was, you know, coming down. So it, rules are great to set parameters, but there's always going to be um, reasons why they can't be complied with. And in order to show cause, it's an emergency request. So typically um, they're going to come in when they come in. Yeah, this is the one change I think we see in New York City is that, you know, usually I'm working on that brief on the, the order show cause to like right up to the last minute. And so I, I would typically say to the other side, tomorrow I'm going to be applying for, you know, emergency relief. And then they'll say, when can I get your papers? And it's usually like midnight. But um, the, um, but, that, but then, you know, the, the court needs time anyway, and the court's not going to schedule the order show cause for you know ten o'clock. In the old days, we just hand the papers to someone as you came into court. It's not not what not the way it's going to work in, in this world. But, all right, so let let's turn to trials. Um, Danielle, I know you have had experience with this. We had a major trial in the commercial division where we did direct testimony by affidavits. How how does that help speed the case along? So. I it's described by one of the team members. It's a double-edged sword. Um, what it does is it allows the trial, the length of the trial, to be shorter, particularly where it's you know could be a four to two week trial because most of the and first of all, let me back up. This only happens for bench trials where the judge will be hearing all the testimony, and so in that instance, you can trust that the judge will understand and evaluate neutrally the evidence before them, and so there's an incentive to put forth your direct testimony in an affidavit. And it provides you a lot more time to organize what you're going to say, um, but at the same time, it also provides the other side the opportunity to review in detail what your direct testimony is. Also, so, so that's one negative. Um, another uh, feature of this is that that evidence goes in early. So you may be submitting your direct testimony before you've submitted your deposition designations or you're still working on motions in limine. Um, so it's sort of the, the sequence of preparing for trial is sometimes a little bit thrown off. Um, but on the whole, it, it's viewed as helpful and, and happens often. One thing to consider if you are considering doing a direct testimony by affidavit is whether you want to negotiate for one or two live witnesses. Um, just because it does help or could help frame the, your case, frame your trial, you might consider making your company witness or your key witness have direct testimony live and then submitting the rest of the testimony via affidavit. Um, so those are sort of the thoughts on how that does and doesn't work. Good, and let me just get back to the last question we have and, and then we'll try to conclude. So this is for you, Judge. Um, do you take into account in your consideration of like the equity, how big the case is, is this just a $10,000 case versus a $10 billion case? Is this a case of massive public policy importance versus, you know, I know everybody's case is important, but in terms of, I know, for example, there's no proportionality requirement in the, the CPLR, but there is in the federal rules that we brought into the commercial division. Um, you know, how, how do you take that into account? You know, how, how sizable the case is, how complex it is, what, what is that? say in terms of the equities with regard to this specific rule direct testimony with any of these rules i think this question is really about the commercial rules in general i think well i i think every case should have this same level of consideration 
because $10,000 to one person is similar to a corporate um, dispute over millions. So I really will take each and every um, case and look at the reason why the, they want a waiver of the rules and I will determine it on a case by case. I'm never gonna just look at a category of cases and assume that that case should have more um, deference given to it with regard to the rules um, being waived. So I, I can't just say overall, this is the type of case, if it's a complex uh, or a complex medical malpractice case, presumptively it's going to need to have the rules um, waived because I, I think that each case is different and that's how I've been viewing um, each case that comes before me since I was sworn in. Good. So we're going to get to the final round in one second. Um, but I think what you've Steve? heard is there's no. You, you go ahead, Professor. Let me just, just finish. quickly. There's no on one that, size fits all. But Professor, go go ahead. That quickly the uh, proportionality idea that you mentioned, based on the size of the case, that is it. They sneak it in under request for documents. So you'll see that in the new rule 202.20-C. Subdivision E is in Edward on page 33. That's exhibit K. You'll see reference to disclosure obligations under the CPLR and proportional to the needs of the case, which I'm, I'm sure lawyers are going to grasp at for good reason. All right, so let's go to our final code, which is rules, R U L E S. I don't know if you want to put that up, Jeff, or not. Uh, all right, and so it's R-U-L-E-S is the last code. So we're gonna give everybody one last uh, comment and a speed round here. And I think what we'll do is we'll ask, you know, what do you like about the rules? And is there anything that you wouldn't translate from the commercial division over to general practice? And let's start with you, Ryan. Uh, well, thank you uh, for allowing me to be here today. I think uh, the rules, Overall, I'm, I'm happy with them. I think it codifies a lot of common sense. I know there's some conflict that professors brought up and obviously um, that can't be ignored. But in my practice, I think this will hold people accountable, allow us to push cases. And I think it creates um, a level playing field with clients of different financial means. Uh, as far as what I don't think should be brought over, um, I, I believe that the issue with the discovery, uh, as far as the depositions, uh, I, I, have I don't have a major problem with the time limit, but I think there should be something in the rules dealing with multi-party cases. So there's some more guidance for the courts. I feel we have multi, multi well, I'm seeing my federal practice, when you have multiple defendants, it get confusing and there's not a lot of guidance there. So it really leaves uh, the practitioners not sure what to expect. And you might be asking for permission prior to the deposition when in fact you might not know until you're in the deposition. And if, if you don't get that extension, then you might be prejudiced. How about you, Danielle? Um, I mean, my take is that a lot of the stuff was already elsewhere or required elsewhere or sort of part of common practice. Um, things that should or should not be moved over. I don't have strong feelings really. I feel like some of the commercial division rules are created for you know, higher stakes cases, meaning like higher spending cases. And so some of the resources required to do the, the linking and the bookmarking where I might have access to a paralegal or someone to help seem, according to Judge Riva, a little less useful outside of the commercial division. Professor Connors, what do you like about the commercial rules and what wouldn't you bring across? 
Uh, what I don't like is the fact that the state bar has asked for a stay. It's been announced that there was a, a stay and the courts have been silent. So I, as an author, and I'm sure so many of you out there as practitioners are wondering, do I need to comply with these? And the, it's odd, but I think the court should come out and say, we're going to consider issuing a stay. We're going to decide by this day. or We're not going to stay these rules. That would be number one. Um, I, I think I don't like a lot of the disclosure aspects of the rules. I don't know that they add much to what we have um, in a meaningful manner, but there's a lot of you know, particulars that if you miss, you're in trouble. Um, and I do think, um, and all of you have said it, that there's a lot of common sense here. And if you follow these rules, you'd probably um, do better in practice. But to have, what is it, six sets of rules out there for lawyers to follow now, you know, it's, it's time to um, get together and put the CP, revise the CPLR and try to put as much as possible in one document to make it easier for the lawyers to practice and more economical for their clients. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. And we'll give you the last word, Judge Levin. What I don't like about the rules is the way they were rolled out in December during the pandemic with literally zero input from the bench and the bar. Um, I do think uh, my theme is always less is more. So having more rules like Judge or Professor Connors indicated is just more difficult um, to follow because I know that attorneys want to follow the rules, but they there's so many of them um, at times they don't even know what they are. So what I worry about is that uh, this will cause adversaries to kind of take advantage of each other um, in a sense that maybe an attorney who knows the rules will try to move to dismiss somebody's case and depending on what judge they have, they might get it dismissed. And so it's really gonna be, it's instead of uniformity, I think it creates a lot of dysfunction depending on what judge you have, what jurisdiction you're in. Is your judge more liberal? Is your judge gonna be somebody who um, says there's no, there's no waiver? So to me, it causes a little bit more chaos and unknown in a time that we really don't need it. So that's my final say. Well, thank you everybody. Danielle, do you wanna give us some closing uh, remarks? Thank you everyone for coming to our panel. It was great to get together with all of our alumni. And I know there's a lot of familiar names on the list who attended today. So thank you for all coming. I think it was a helpful discussion. Um, Thank you, and don't forget to write to the State Bar if you have thoughts. Thank you, everybody. Bye.